neighbor. You are listening to the New Garden Church podcast. We're glad you're here. This year, we are walking through the whole Bible together as a church family, day by day and week by week. We're meeting online right now, but we normally meet at 10 a.m. at DuPont Tyler Middle School in Hermitage, Tennessee. You can catch our weekly gatherings live by checking out our website at www.newgarden.church/online. We would love to hear from you. This week, Jeff provided a message from Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy is not a book about laws. It is a book about love and the covenant relationship between God and the people of Israel. We hope that you enjoy what you hear today and check back in with us again soon. Good morning. It's week 10 of Long Story Short, and we're finishing up the book of Deuteronomy. Now, we spent last week looking at what it means to love Yahweh, our God, with all our heart, all our soul, all our strength. So maybe you've been throwing around some new Hebrew words this week, but I also hope you've been saying that prayer like on a daily basis as we focus our eyes and our hearts and our actions on loving and serving Yahweh alone. Today, we are in Deuteronomy one more Sunday before we start marching around the walls of Jericho next Sunday when we get to the book of Joshua. Now, this series is so much fun because we're moving so quickly. It's like this roller coaster of stories and excitement. But the series is also frustrating because there are so many other fun stories I wish we could visit together. But I hope you are reading along with us throughout the week, seeing all these different things. Now, if you aren't, let me invite you once again to go to our online resources at newgarden.church 2021. Download the reading plan. The great news is, is we are through Leviticus and Numbers and soon Deuteronomy. And Thursday, we will begin reading Joshua. So if you were just waiting to get through some of the more difficult books, like this week is an excellent opportunity to jump on board. But again, the goal is not reading the whole Bible word for word. That's an awesome outcome, but it's not the goal. Our goal is to open the word on a daily basis so that if it's just one chapter, do that. We want to develop a habit and rhythm of life that orbits around the Word of God and our relationship with God. So as for today, I want to take you back to June 2016. Finn had just turned six months old. Our student ministry had just finished summer camp. Our theme was toxic. Maybe you have that shirt. Let me know in the chat. You have a toxic summer camp shirt. Uh, And then right after summer camp, we had a day of rest. And then we would head to Lipscomb University for impact. Now, every year, the big question going into impact is what is the theme going to be? Because everything revolves around that idea, all the classes, the lessons, and the skits. So we walk into Allen Arena for the opening session, and we find out the theme is hide. And I thought, well, that's cool. Like everyone has the tendency to hide sometimes, hide from their feelings, hide from their doubts. Uh, But then they drew the logo up on the thing, and it was H-Y-D-E, hide, as in Mr. Hyde, or the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. So I'm guessing you know the story or some adaptation of the story, like the 1963 adaptation, The Nutty Professor with Jerry Lewis, or the 1996 version with Eddie Murphy. Which one do you prefer? Say it in the chat. Um, It's a story of dueling identities. Dr. Jekyll wanted a way to improve his character by isolating all of his selfish, evil impulses into one place. So he drinks this potion and he turns into Mr. Hyde, who exhibits and embodies all of these evil impulses of violence and selfishness and stinginess that live within Dr. Jekyll. But it turns out that Mr. Hyde is worse than Dr. Jekyll thought. So he stops taking the potion. 
But eventually, he starts turning into Mr. Hyde without the potion. He can no longer control when he becomes Mr. Hyde. And it seems like the more he fights to control Mr. Hyde, the more Mr. Hyde starts to control Dr. Jekyll. So in 2016, I thought this is a perfect theme for teenagers who are wrestling with who they are, the choices they're making, and the fight for their own self-identity in light of their identity in Christ. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is a brilliant, engaging story to apply to teenagers. But the struggles we face as teens don't evaporate in adulthood. This is a brilliant and engaging story for all of us because this story exposes something that is true in all of us. Like I would bet most of us experience this duality on a daily basis, the fight between selfishness and selflessness, between good and evil, between life and death. And so you have this experience where you know certain choices that you make are wrong. They're selfish. They don't come from a good place. Uh, and, and they have bad consequences. They don't lead to life. We know that. And then we just totally do those things anyway. And we step back and we have to ask, what's wrong with us? You know, like before I do it, I know it's wrong. And after I do it, I know it's wrong. Maybe even while I'm doing it, I know it's wrong. But then when it comes to the moment of choosing, I totally do it anyway. And so it's this paradox of selfishness in us because there's a sense in which I know it's wrong and if you ask me like outside of the situation I would plainly say that's not who I want to be like this is the person I want to be but there is this impulse inside of me it's like there's somebody else it's like there's this Mr. Hyde inside of me right you know what I'm talking about but at the same time you can't make that an, an excuse like it's you making the decision. It's not somebody else. It's you. I'm making the decision. It's me, but it's not me. Does this resonate with anybody else but me? Like when you think about your experiences and your actions, your behavior, your choices, like this fictional story helps reveal a true story of selfishness and evil inside all of us. We're all an ambiguous mixture of good and bad, of generosity and selfishness, of violence and kindness. It's all inside of us. And it's this mix and we're constantly being pulled between the two. And since this is a common human experience, it's an experience that obviously the scriptures are going to address. And this is a huge theme in the storyline of the scriptures. Like if you are reading along with our long story short challenge of reading through the Bible, you have been spending a lot of time with a people group who are like just like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, are they not? And what's the name of this ancient people group? It's the people of Israel. And in many ways, the Bible is exploring and telling its own Jekyll and Hyde story by telling us the story of the people of Israel. The Bible is not going to try telling us just ancient facts about some faraway place and people. Like this is our story that we're reading on these pages. It's for us. And it poses the question then, like, if God is going to use this family that we've been following through the storyline to bring blessing and salvation to all nations, how can he do that for people who are Jekyll and Hyde? I mean, think about all that we've read. At one moment, they're coming out of Egypt, they're singing praise songs to Yahweh, and then the next, they're grumbling and complaining about water. One moment, they're devoting themselves fully to following all that Yahweh has commanded, and the next, they're rebelling and they're like looking for a new leader who's going to take them back to Egypt. They're happy and then they're angry. They're satisfied and then demanding. They're like a hungry toddler who hasn't had his nap. Like at one moment, Yahweh is telling Moses, 
man, go look at your kids, see what they're doing. I'm, I'm going to kill them. I'm, I'm going to kill them all, you know? And Moses has to say, whoa, okay, take a breath. You know, let me go talk to him. And so Moses heads down the mountain and he like gronk smashes the tablet of the 10 commandments on the ground. And, and he goes back up to God and he's like, all right, I give up, you know, just kill me. Uh, you can have them just end my life. The people of Israel seemingly have God and Moses at the end of their wits with this pendulum of behavior. And we get so shocked by their choices and we think, who are these people? And the story brilliantly leads us to the conclusion that they are the people who stare you in the mirror every morning. You are these people because like these people are you. So how is God going to bring blessing and salvation to all the nations in all the world through this group of Jekyll and Hyde people? That's the question in front of us as we open our Bible this morning. Today, we're still in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, which is the fifth book of the Bible. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Uh, So open that up. Go to chapter 1, verse 1 with me. These are the words Moses spoke to all Israel in the wilderness east of the Jordan, that is, in the Arabah, opposite Suth, between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, and Dizahab. All right, at least now everybody has a clear idea of exactly where Moses is talking about, right? Right? Like, no, we can barely pronounce these words, let alone point to them on a map. So let's just remember where we have been so far in the story. So page one. God makes an amazing piece of real estate and he gives it to humanity to steward, take care of it. And then by page three, we ruin the place, which turns into ruin with each other. And that's like the first 11 chapters of Genesis. But in Genesis 12, God begins a rescue plan with Abram and his future family. So Abram leaves his home, travels down to the land of Canaan, where he has this promised son, Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons, one daughter, Dinah. Uh, The family grows to around 70 people. And because of a famine and their long lost brother, Joseph, they end up down in Egypt at the end of the book of Genesis. Now, how long are they in Egypt? A long time, like hundreds and hundreds of years. And that first generation dies off and this oppressive king, Pharaoh of Egypt, begins to enslave the Israelites and enact a slow genocide to kill them all off. So God raises up a deliverer, Moses, to deliver the people out of slavery in Egypt and they wander down south to the Sinai Peninsula. They camp out at Mount Sinai for how long? It seems like a really long time because it's out Mount Sinai where they get all of these laws, like half of the book of Exodus, the whole book of Leviticus, and like the first third of the book of Numbers. It's a lot of chapters to read, but in terms of how long they're there, it's like one calendar year by the dates in the book. And then they're called to go up into the promised land and look. So see what Moses says in verse 2. It takes 11 days to go from Horeb to Kadesh Barnea by the Mount Seir Road. So Kadesh Barnea is about halfway between Sinai and Canaan. So how long did it take the Israelites to make it that way? Not 11 days. It took them about 40 years. The Israelites, they sent spies up into the promised land and the spies come back and they say, listen, it's an amazing land for sure. Look at the size of these grapes, right? But Yahweh can't save us. He can't deliver us. There's no way we're going to be able to survive in this land full of other people groups. Like they're giants. There's no way. And so the people are told to abandon God's promises 
And they do. And so the consequences of that generation's decision is God says, you don't want to go into the land? Fine, you won't. If you don't believe I can deliver you, then how about you wander in the desert until you all die and we'll let your kids be the ones who go into that land. So that whole generation, they wander in the wilderness for 40 years, uh, even though it should only take 11 days. And so it's their kids, the next generation who wanders up north to the plains of Moab. And these are the people standing at this place described right here, getting ready to go into the land. So verse three, in the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses proclaimed to the Israelites all that Yahweh had commanded him concerning them. So the book of Deuteronomy is a collection of speeches of Moses to the new generation of people of Israel before they go into the land. So a modern metaphor might be like a coach in a locker room before the big game. Like the Israelites, they've all taken a knee in a huddle in the locker room and Moses is rallying them like, all right, here we go. You know, we're, we're going to go out in the field and you've got a choice. Uh, are you going to obey Yahweh? Are you going to be faithful to him? Are you going to follow the terms of the covenant that he's laid out before you? Remember how he's redeemed you. He's rescued you. So let's go live it out. Like he's, he's trying to pump them up. And then you get to chapter four. Now, Israel, hear the decrees and laws I'm about to teach you. Follow them so that you may live and may go in and take possession of the land Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, is giving you. Do not add to what I command you and do not subtract from it, but keep the commands of Yahweh, your God, that I give you. So what exactly does Moses say? In verse one, he's saying, listen to the decrees and the laws that were revealed at Mount Sinai. They were part of this covenant relationship. And he says, obey them and follow them. So why? Does he say, so you can be redeemed or so that you can be saved? No, he says, follow them so that you can live. So you can live. So think about the storyline we've read. They're, they're already redeemed. Like they were redeemed out of slavery in Egypt. The whole family was there already saved. It's to a saved people that God gives his commands and challenges to obey. And this is an important point. The obedience God desires is a response out of gratefulness for redemption. So the logic here is this. Following an obedience does not result in salvation. Like you were already saved just by God's grace. He kept his promises to Abraham. He brought you out of slavery. You obey so that you can live, so that you can experience true life in the, the destination that I'm taking you to, so that you can experience the redeemed life, true life. Like that's why you obey. That's the idea here. And so what he's going to do then throughout the rest of the book of Deuteronomy is he's going to say, you guys can do it. Like it's another rehashing of the laws of the covenant for 20 chapters. Maybe you've noticed that while we've been reading this week, uh, but we're going to finish the whole book on Wednesday. But the core of Deuteronomy is this rehashing of the terms of the covenant that they made at Mount Sinai so that they can experience true life in the land they're about to enter. So then we get to chapter 28. So he finishes laying out the terms of the covenant again for this new generation. And 28 and the following are his last words. Like this is literally the last minutes before they go out onto the playing field. And he's going to tell them, listen, here's how it's going to go. Are you going to follow and be faithful to God, the one who redeemed you, the one who, you know, saved you? Are you going to, or, or are you going to turn away? And then he gives them a preview of the future, the consequences for both of these decisions. He's, he lays out two roads before them and he, he shows them where these roads will lead. So he says, 
If you fully obey Yahweh your God and carefully follow all his commands I give you today, Yahweh your God will set you high above all nations on earth. All these blessings will come on you and accompany you if you obey Yahweh your God. So what is the result of obedience? It's not salvation. It's blessing, like true life. And then he gives examples. You'll be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed. The crops of your land and uh, the young of your livestock, the calves of your herds, the lambs of your flocks, your basket, your kneading trough will be blessed. You'll be blessed when you come in. You'll be blessed when you go out. And he goes on verse after verse for 14 verses, straight through verse 14. Like this is a picture of true life, abundant life, life with God in the destination he's taking you to, blessing. And so we reread this and we think like who in their right mind would not obey? Like if you know this is the result, what are you going to do? Who would be foolish enough not to obey? And the answer, it's people like you and me. Like those are the people who choose not to obey because there's something wrong with us, which we'll get to in a minute. So then he describes the other road in verse 15. He says, however, if you do not obey Yahweh your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I'm giving you today, all these curses will come on you and overtake you. And he turns everything on its head. You'll be cursed in the city and cursed in the country. Your basket and your kneading trough will be cursed. The fruit of your womb will be cursed. The crops of your land, the calves of your herds and your flocks, you'll be cursed when you come in and cursed when you go out. Now you think he's just painting the same picture but with like different color paint. But as you read, maybe you notice something. Uh, how many verses did he speak about blessing? 14 verses. Then you start counting how many verses he speaks about curses. 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 51, 52, 53. So 14 verses of blessing versus 53 verses of curses. That's a difficult sentence to say, kind of fun. 14 verses versus 53 verses of curses. Say that five times fast. But beyond fun sentences to say, like what does this have to say to us? Some of us might be bothered by this. You think, man, that God of the Old Testament was so vindictive and angry. He used all that curses. So remember, this is Moses talking. And Moses is revealing where he thinks the story is going. Like, have you ever been watching a movie and you've got a good picture of the characters and the plot and you've already figured out how the story is going to end? That's what's happening right here. How does Moses think the story is going to end? A blessing or a curse? And he doesn't keep it a secret. Moses would not be a great coach to have in the locker room. He gathers everybody up, you know, take a knee. Everybody got something to say. Uh, we're about to go out on the field and you're going to fail. There's no way you can succeed at this. Like <laughs> he kind of lets the air out of the balloon. Uh, but that's what he's doing. Like look at chapter 30. He says, when all these blessings and curses I have set before you come on you and you take them to heart wherever Yahweh your God disperses you among the nations. So this is not good news. So he thinks he knows how the story is going to go. Why? How does he know? He just wandered through the desert with these people for 40 years. That's how he knows. He knows that they're Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. They go back and forth. Like that one moment they're obedient and the next moment they're totally going their own way. They couldn't care less about Yahweh. He knows this. And so he says, yes, there's going to be some blessings. Uh, there's going to be some successes and there's going to be some curses for disobedience. And actually, there's going to be a lot more disobedience 
then there is obeying. And the story is going to end with exile, which was like the ultimate curse because he brings them into the land and then they totally misbehave. They flaunt Yahweh's gift and they become a corrupt nation of injustice. And the ultimate punishment is getting the boot, like getting kicked out of this land, exile, which is what's going to happen about 700 years after Moses' speech here. And so Moses knows how the game is going to end, how it's going to go. And so this is not a very hopeful story so far. It's a lot like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, except for what he says next. And what he does now is he holds a challenge and a promise for the people of Israel. And it's how it becomes God's word to us, I think, is that we are just like the people of Israel. The reason we are told their story is because it's our story. And what Moses is going to lay out here is a challenge for how the people of Israel need to respond, but also a promise a promise of grace and salvation for what God is going to do. And I'd say that's relevant for some of us who are like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. So let's keep reading. So when you're sitting in exile, uh, when you're facing the consequences of all your bad decisions, he says, And when you and your children return to Yahweh your God and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul, according to everything I command you today, Then Yahweh your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you. Even if you've been banished to the most distant land under the heavens, from there Yahweh your God will gather you and bring you back. He will bring you back to the land that belonged to your ancestors and you will take possession of it. He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your ancestors. So is this good news? Well, kind of. Like actually, As we look more closely, it's kind of good news. It's good news in as much as what it means that God doesn't ever write anybody off, right? Like you can always return. When you're sitting in the mess of your bad decisions, all you have to do is return. You can always return and you'll be restored. You'll be restored to your relationship with God. You can be restored. Now, what does it mean to return? Well, the word translated here as return is the Hebrew word shuv. So this is your Hebrew word for the day. Shuv. Uh, it's, it's just a basic word of movement. So you're moving in one direction and for some reason or another, maybe somebody says, hey, you're going the wrong way. And you decide, oh, I don't want to go that way. So you turn and you go a different direction. That the act of turning is to shuv. Uh, and if you turn from something and I'm turning back towards something else, then I am returning. And so the Hebrew prophets use this word often when you return to a relationship. But in English, it sounds kind of funny to return to a person. So it's often translated as repent. When I turn back to God, I repent. Now, repent is just an English word that means shuv or turn. Uh, Now, maybe you wouldn't classify repent as a happy word in English, right? It usually gets posted on signs with like flames of fire behind in the background or it's yelled through a bullhorn at people on the street, you know, repent. Uh, But it doesn't have any of those connotations in the Bible. It it literally just means I'm going this way. Oh, that's the wrong way. I need to turn, shuv, and go a different direction. Um, I may still want to go this direction, but at least I've been informed that it's the wrong way. And so what Moses is saying is you always have the opportunity to shuv. You can always shuv. And he says, when you shuv to Yahweh your God and you obey him with all your heart and with all your soul. Okay, so this seems like it would be good news, but stop and think about this. Like what's the Israelites track record with shuving? Not good. So this is the problem. The problem is their heart. He says you can shuv and obey him with your heart anytime. That's always an available option to you. But after reading the story, 
we've just read that's the whole problem is their heart. So yeah, like one day they'll shove, but then they're going to shove back again. They're, they're going to shove from their shoving, you know, they'll repent from their repentance. And so I'm sure none of us have ever done this before. So you're doing great for a while. You have resolve, you know, but give it a week or two. And then you repent of that thing that you repented of. You go back and then you repent of that repentance and so on. And so verses two through five seem like good news, but then we're like, well, they're not really. Like this doesn't solve the core of the problem, which is the broken human heart. We've got this Mr. Hyde hiding out, or maybe he's not hiding at all. He's just there and he takes over sometimes. And it's not like it's some other person, it's me. There's this part of me that's just not good. It doesn't, it doesn't take me down the right path. It doesn't bring me to true life. This has to be dealt with. Otherwise, verses two through five will just be the same old story again, which is why Moses says what he says next. Verse six is the hope and the salvation of Moses's locker room speech. Verse six, he says, Yahweh your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants, so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. So this is one of the most important passages in the developing storyline of the Bible here. So obviously there's a metaphor here, right? Like circumcise your hearts. It's related to the covenant they already have where Israelite males would have this physical symbol, uh, which their ability to produce further generations, more offspring, their families, like their whole future was connected to their identity as the people of Yahweh, the people of God. So circumcision is a physical symbol that they are part of the redeemed people. But let's think about that for a second. Does the fact that you have a physical symbol uh, marking you as belonging to a religious group or something like that, does that symbol automatically mean that your heart is just going to fall into line? like obedient, soft, humble. No, of course not. Just because somebody has a cross around their neck doesn't mean that all of, the, all of a sudden their decisions that they make are you know, all to the honor and glory of Jesus. Of course not. Uh, not that symbols are bad. Like it can help remind you, but it can also become a liability too. It's like putting a New Garden uh, church magnet on the back of your car and then just being a terrible driver. You're cutting people off in traffic, you're yelling, you're flipping people off, right? Now, if that's you, Maybe move your magnet to like the inside, you know, your steering wheel or something. Uh, so the symbol doesn't automatically mean your heart falls in line. And so Moses develops this metaphor. He says, what you actually need is to have a circumcision of the heart. So it's this image of the removal of something bad from your heart. We all need heart surgery. Mr. Hyde needs to be killed off. And that would make lots of us happy if we could just find a way to do that. And Moses says, this is God's promise. He's going to circumcise your hearts. He's going to heal and transform your hearts. Why? Look at verse six. He will circumcise your hearts so you can love him. Now this is different than verse two. In verse two, he said, when we shove, when we return and obey. But verse six says he will change your heart so that you can love him. So you can shove and obey someone. But does that mean that you're going to love them? Like, can you obey someone and not love them? Yeah, of course not. But if you truly love someone, will you obey them? Well, totally. And like a host of other things too. So the language here is very important. When we shove, it can lead to obedience. And that's a step in the right direction. But it doesn't get at the core of the problem. 
The core of the problem is that we don't actually love God more than we love ourselves. That's the problem. And so what God has to accomplish is this complete shift in our desires. Shoving is us saying no to something. But to say no to something, you have to, you have, to have something more attractive that you want to say yes to. And that something more attractive is about a transformation of my desires. And that's what God is saying he's going to do here. He will change your hearts so that Mr. Hyde becomes more and more unnecessary because my true passion, my true desire is to love and to obey. Deuteronomy is not a book about laws. It's actually a book about love. It's about a love and a relationship with the creator and the redeemer God. Now, this is a very powerful idea. And I just want to highlight one more thing before we end. It's this relationship between verses two and six, uh, which reflect a relationship and a responsibility between us and God. So verse two through five, Israel is, is called to shuve, to turn, to repent, to, to return. So whose responsibility is it for Israel to shuve? Well, it's Israel's. So God points out their need to shuve, but it's Israel's choice on what they're going to do. Will we shuve? Or will we not? And it's up to Israel to do the work of making a decision and turning. But in the very next verse, verse 6, he says, for that choice to have any long-term life change, to get where you need to be going, this is not going to be the only solution to the problem. God has to do something in you. He has to change your heart. And Moses says the only way to have a fundamental change of heart, of desires, of passion, of orientation, that can only happen by the work of God to change you, heal you, transform you on the inside. Like We are completely incapable of killing off Mr. Hyde. We can't do it. It has to be a work of God's grace. But think of this relationship. Moses is calling the people to obey, to follow, to love. Whose responsibility is it for that to happen? Well, if you just read verses 2 through 5, you would say it's Israel's. But then if you just read verse 6, you would say it's God's. But when you read them together, you would say it's both. Like <laughs> It's both. God is not going to cast a magic spell on Israel and just poof, all of their patterns of thinking and behaving just disappear. When God points out that they're going in the wrong direction, you, like you don't want to go that way. It leads to death. Israel has to respond. And the same is true for us. We have to shuv. We have to participate. This is not going to be a magic spell, but in the same breath we say that, we also have to say this is not just about pulling ourselves up by our own moral bootstraps. We can't do it because we repent of our repentance. And for so for the long term, for this to really have life transformation, for this really going, if it's going to work, it's going to have to be a work of God's grace to heal and transform my broken heart. So it's both. It's both, Moses says. It's an initiative of God's grace, but that should not for one second let us off the hook to think that we don't actually have to make hard choices, make tough decisions to deal with our issues, to finally go talk with that person, have a hard conversation to reconcile, to make difficult choices to forgive, to open up my life to someone and be fully transparent. Like, I'm struggling, I need help. Uh, to get on my knees more in prayer, to get more scripture in my mind and my heart. Like those things are not just going to happen. Uh, and God won't make those choices for you. We have to do it. But it's this paradox because this sounds overwhelming. Like there's no way I could do all of that. But you take one situation or one decision at a time. You seek God's wisdom. Like is this a, is the path I'm going down? Do I, do I need to shuv? Or do I need to turn and go in a different direction? 
And for some of us, we're going down a path and we may only be capable of like turning enough to look over our shoulder and saying, like, God, I need help. Like, I feel like I'm stuck. I feel like I've been on this road for so long. I'm in this rut, this pattern, and I don't know how to get out. But the fact that you're even asking for help shows that God is already doing something in you. He's already working on you. Like, I'm sure if we went around, everybody who has followed Christ long enough could tell a story of a path uh, that they were taking that was not leading to life. And God called them to turn. And like that act of shooving changed everything. But there are so many aspects of our lives that we're traveling down multiple paths at the same time, some leading to life, some leading to death. And God is not going to grab the wheel from you and change your direction for you. We need to respond. But God's promise is that he is with us and he will change us. If we respond to his work and his initiative, by his grace, he will change our hearts. So we need to pay attention to his instruction. Like, don't ignore his voice. And when the decision is placed before us of the choice between life and death, choose life. Now, as followers of Christ, the reason we even have the opportunity to choose life is because Jesus chose death. He chose to walk a path to the cross where he would give up his life so that we could live. In his death, we find life. Because it's through his death that he defeated the power of sin and death in our lives. Sin no longer has its power. Death no longer has its sting. The door to forgiveness and eternal life has been opened. And each week, we remember this through a symbol. It's like circumcision was a physical symbol for the Israelites. The Lord's Supper is a physical symbol for us today. It's a reminder of what Jesus did on the cross for us 2,000 years ago. And it's a reminder of what Jesus is doing in our hearts on a daily basis. So today... As we go to the table, we take the bread, we take the cup. Let's pay attention to the voice of God. Is he showing you a place in your life where you need to shoot? Then turn back towards him. Like, is there a path you have turned from that you can be thankful for him showing you life? Be thankful. And as we go through this week and we're given the choice between life and death, choose life. That's it for this episode. Thank you for checking in with us, and we'll be back with another one next week.